So I uh, actually thought I would get all the way through, halfway through chapter 64. Um, then I kind of narrowed that down to 63. And um, then I narrowed it down to half of 63. And then I got so enamored with the first six verses of 63, I couldn't get any further than the first six verses of chapter 63. So Pastor Mark is going to be really disappointed. Um, I was just amazed. I just, I just kept looking at it going, come on. Um, it's unreal. So if you remember last time, um, Brother Richard preached for us out of chapter 62 and uh, there's that important verse there in verse 6 of chapter 62. It says, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. So there's this picture of these watchmen who are watching over the city of Jerusalem over and over, calling out to God, take care of your people, take care of your people. Then if you jump down to verse 10, you get go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. So there's this preparation going on. And, and uh, Brother Richard did a great job of showing us what's going on there with this beautiful picture of the bridegroom uh, making ready for the bride. Um, really making his bride. Uh, verse 11, Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his, his reward is with them and his recompense before him. So there's this picture in verse 62 of the watchman waiting, waiting for the bride to meet the bridegroom, waiting for salvation to come, preparing the way. And then we get to 63, and 63 begins, I want you to, I think a picture here helps, um, and try not to think of Monty Python, that does not help here, but I want you to picture a watchman sitting on, at the watchtower above the, the, the wall of the city, looking out, uh, waiting uh, and looking to see, and then the watchman sees something, and he expresses that in, in 63. He sees one who comes, the one approaches, and then he has a conversation. So there's a conversation between the watchman and this figure approaching. You got that in your head? Watchman looking down, sees one approaching, and then there's a conversation. That's all those six verses are. It's all we're going to look at together. Verse six, uh, chapter 63, verse 1. Remember, this is written... 2,700 years ago from right now, 700 years before Jesus is born. And probably about 100 years before the very nation that is talked about would be completely destroyed. Verse 1. Who, this is the watchman, who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel marching in the greatness of His strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like His who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the people's no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood 
spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we ask again that you will show us our Messiah. You would show us Christ. I have no words of appreciation enough to say thank you that you would be so kind to give us a word. Pinned 2,700 years ago and ready to feed us today. Oh God, I pray that all of our preconceived notions of what's right and good would not stand in the way of us seeing Your Word speak. And so I pray that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the King of kings, would be put on display in the perfection of who He is by us looking at Isaiah 63 this morning. And so, Father, we ask, show us Christ. May we see Him. May we believe in Him this morning. I pray for that. And Father, would it affect us? Would it affect our mission? Would it affect the world around us? Would You use it to save those who are lost? Father, we pray for that. We ask all these things to You, Father, through the name, the exalted name of the Mighty One, Jesus that Your Spirit would bring it about. Amen. So, sorry, there's not a, uh, a PowerPoint, but I think your handout has everything. Uh, you're not going to have to be flipping around for verses. I've put it all there uh, for you, and we'll walk right through it. In 63, those first six verses, which is all we're going to get to, it's a conversation between a watchman watching over the city of Israel and a subject who's approaching the city gates. So watchman is keeping lookout. He sees this impressive figure approaching Jerusalem, and the figure is coming from the southeast. The watchman gives us four characteristics of the figure approaching. First, he tells us the figure comes from Edom. So where is Edom, and why does it matter? Well, Edom is the land originally inhabited by Esau, who is the older twin son of Isaac. Recall that Esau was the one who was supposed to receive the inheritance from uh, Isaac as he was the oldest. And the most valuable part of the inheritance of Isaac was not the family farm, but the blessing that had been given 
to Isaac's father, Abraham. So God gives a blessing to Abraham, passes it on to Isaac, and that would have gone to Esau. It's the promise of the Abrahamic covenant. It's the promise that God would bring salvation through the heirs of Abraham. But the inheritance did not go to Esau, but instead he forfeited it, and God chose instead to give it to the younger of the twin brothers, Jacob. So from this point on, there was tension between Jacob and Esau, between the descendants of Jacob and the descendants of Esau. The descendants of Jacob were recipients of the promise of Abraham, and thus they became the people of God. The Bible clearly states that God loved Jacob. But it goes so far as to say that God hated Esau. You actually read that in the prophet Malachi chapter 1. You can read that all the way uh, in Romans chapter 9. So the descendants of Esau settled into the land of Edom. It's situated southeast of Jerusalem. They were a consistent enemy to the people of God, the Israelites. The, the Edomites refused to help Israel when they were on their way out of Egypt. They attacked them instead. They opposed King Saul. They battled King David. They were adversarial towards King Solomon. They opposed King Jehoshaphat and rebelled against King Jehoram. But it's, all, it's important. This is the key. The conflict between the nations of Edom and Israel isn't simply represented as a long family feud between the descendants of Jacob and Esau. Instead, these two nations represent two types of people. Those who have been chosen by God as His children and those who God recognizes as His enemy. And more important, every person born under Adam will fall under one of these two types. Either we will be associated with Jacob in Jerusalem, or we will be associated with Esau and Edom. So now, if you have that in mind, I hope you see the incredible weight in the point being made by the watchman when he sees that this figure is approaching Jerusalem from Edom. He is saying that this figure is leaving from dealing with the enemies of God and is now coming to deal with the children of God. So after he describes his approach, we are then told the figure uh, more about the figure, and we're told about his apparel. It says that he's covered with crimson. That's red spotted garments. We'll be given more information about that later. We're further told that his garments are a splendid apparel. It goes on then to describe his gait as a mighty gait, like a deliberate movement. This actually is divine language. This is Shekinah-type glory when they're talking about the splendid apparel. It shines in magnificence and splendor. So, so ask the watchman, if you summed it all together, who are you? who comes from the enemies of God with red-stained garments 
in divine-like strength and purpose. And then, immediately, right there in chapter 1, we get a response from this figure. This way he says, It is I, this is the second part of verse 1, It is I, speaking in righteousness, speaking the words in righteousness, mighty to save. That's the response. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. So this figure identifies himself as one who speaks in righteousness. Why do I keep making sense of that? Well, trying to make sense of that because as we've marched through Isaiah, we keep hearing about this promised son, this promised servant. And over and over it's described like this. Isaiah 45, 23 is an example. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. That's speaking in righteousness. Or in Isaiah 55, verse 11, the same figure says, So shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. This is one who speaks in righteousness. This must be the promised servant son. This is the Messiah. So the figure is the Messiah. Furthermore, listen to that self-description. That's a very odd way when someone asks you a question, who are you? It is I. <laughs> right? That would be the response. That's supposed to be the response. That's a self-declaration. That reminds us of a self-declaration. It reminds us of the self-declaration at the beginning of Isaiah 61. Do you remember the beginning of Isaiah 61? The speaker spoke in the first person. Read with me. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Stay with me. If you recall, that was the text, we talked about this a few weeks ago, that was the text chosen by Jesus some 700 years later when He preached His very first recorded sermon in Nazareth. He preached that text, He picked up the scroll, He turns to Isaiah 61, and He stands up and reads it, and then He says, this has been fulfilled. Jesus was saying, I am the Messiah of Isaiah 61. When the watchman looks out and he sees this figure approaching, he is seeing Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This makes sense of why the figure is described as splendid in his apparel and marching in greatness and strength. He is divine. But it doesn't quite answer... Why does he have red stained clothes and why is he coming from Edom? Well, the watchman, he's just as puzzled as we are about that point. And so he asks him in verse 2, Why is your apparel red and your garment 
like his who treads in the wine press. In other words, you look like you just went grape stomping. What is going on? Now that's odd because in the same description earlier, his appearance was so magnificent, the watchman called it splendid. So here's this figure who is just glorious, covered with red spots all over him. You see, that's, that's the picture. Coming from the enemies of God, coming to the children of God. And now we get an answer. Verses 3 through 6, the figure speaks. The Messiah gives an answer. Listen to it. It's bone chilling. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger, and I trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, and there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger, and I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. These are sobering words. It leaves us with very important questions. I'm guessing you've already seen that when he speaks of trotting on wine presses at the beginning of verse 3, he doesn't mean literal wine presses. Because at the end of verse 3, when he says, their lifeblood spattered on my garment. He is not talking about the lifeblood of grapes. Instead, that is the sobering answer to both questions. It answers for us, why is His apparel red? And it answers for us why He came from Edom. His garments are stained with the blood of the Edomites. But wait! This passage seems confusing. Is this passage on the Messiah who is mighty to save? Or a passage on the Messiah who judges with vengeance? For he said in verse 1 that he is the Messiah who is mighty to save. And then in verse 5, we read where he says that he is his own arm brought salvation. But then we have this language about a day of vengeance being something in his heart. And in verse 6, he states, I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in wrath. I poured out their lifeblood. Who are you? Are you a healing physician mighty to save? Or are you a judge and executioner 
mighty to destroy. My friends, understanding this question, understanding the answer to this, lies at the core of the gospel. As you might imagine, the answer is that the Messiah is both mighty to save and mighty to destroy. He fulfills both roles. It's a matter of timing. It's a matter of identity. I want you to see it. So go back. If we go back into Isaiah 61, the passage that Jesus chose when He stood up at the temple, we should find it interesting that Jesus only quotes the first half of verse 2. He stops the passage without finishing verse 2. So he reads, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and opening of the prison to those who are bound. And, on to verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. All that makes sense. This sounds like a Messiah who is mighty to save. That sounds like the bridegroom of chapter 62 who's come to adore, prepare, and protect his people. But Jesus doesn't read all of verse 2. He intentionally stops short. Had he read all of verse 2, he would have read to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's where he stopped. The very next part is, and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. So what's the big deal? And he's got to stop somewhere, right? It seems apparent that Jesus intentionally left out the portion about the Messiah being sent in order to proclaim the day of vengeance because that was not part of Jesus' mission when He came the first time. His mission the first time was a mission focused on being the Messiah who is mighty to save. But this is important about the timing of the Scriptures. Isaiah 63 is written 700 years before Jesus came the first time. So at that point, God has put the whole world on notice that this single Messiah will have two missions represented by two comings. He will come the first time as the one who is mighty to save, but He will also return as one who is mighty to destroy. Understanding the dual role of Jesus as Messiah means understanding the Gospel. If you understand that Jesus is mighty to save, but you fail to see Him as judge, then you will fail to warn the dangers of unbelief. On the other hand, if you understand that Jesus is judge, but fail to express Him as mighty to save, you'll be left in despair. And might even lead folks into workspace religions like Islam or Mormonism. So let's look at them. What does it mean for Jesus to be mighty to save and mighty to judge? 
First, let's consider what it is for Him to be mighty to judge, to come in vengeance. Who, let's start with the question, who does the Messiah come to judge? Who? Well, the answer is given the very first verse. Who is it that comes from where? Edom. The Messiah brings judgment on those associated with Edom. That is, the Messiah brings judgment on those who are not associated with the promise of Abraham. So Edom represents all the world outside the promise of Abraham. Let's be clear on how you become part of the blessing of Abraham. It is not by natural birth. Had it been by natural birth, then Esau would have been in no problem. Paul tells us in Galatians 3 how we get into Abraham. Verse 7 of Galatians chapter 3, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Verse 9, So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. It's not just a generic faith. It's faith in the Messiah. Paul makes that clear just a few verses down in verse 26. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So how do you get into Abraham? You have faith in the Messiah. The Messiah brings judgment on any who do not place their faith in Him. Next, when will the Messiah come to destroy? The Messiah did not come to judge the first time, but He will be coming to judge in the second coming. Listen, so again, I just love the timing. Year 700 B.C., around then, Isaiah, then Jesus comes, and then writing about 90 years after Jesus, we get the revelation of John, recorded as the last book of the Bible, Revelation. Revelation chapter 14, it's telling us about the second coming of Jesus, when it does come. Now listen to how similar this language sounds to Isaiah. Chapter 14, verse 14, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the, light, on the cloud, one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on His head. It's, exactly, it's like the watchman seeing the person coming with the splendid apparel. Glory, right? And a sharp sickle in His hand. So you've got somebody who is gloriful in their appearance, and they have a weapon of execution in their hand. Now does that not sound like somebody approaching the gates of Jerusalem, glorious in His, in his garments, with blood splattered all over him. It's the exact same picture. Then, verse 19, So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered, interesting, the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress, well, we've heard of that before, of the wrath of God. Winepress and wrath of God. It's Isaiah 63. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and the blood flowed from the winepress. So we know that when the Messiah comes again, and He will come again, then He comes 
to judge. That's when He's coming to judge. And how will He come to judge? He will do so alone, without any human help. Verse 3, I have trodden the winepress how? Alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. The reason for this is that there is no human who has the right to judge except for Jesus as He is the only righteous one. Why does He judge? Does He do it because He enjoys seeing people destroyed? By no means. Instead, God brings judgment because He's a perfect judge. Just like a good human judge punishes the wrongdoer, so God punishes the wicked. If He failed to do it, He wouldn't be good. Furthermore, God does it as preparation for the perfect world. Remember in chapter 62, God is preparing all of this for His bride, this new perfect world and salvation. One of the most important things that the Messiah does is remove all traces of evil to secure the future peace of God's people. Unlike the first Eden, where the state of peace and perfection was fractured by sin, in the second Eden there will be no sin. There will be no evil because God has already destroyed it in the mission of His Messiah. So as you transition now and consider the second reality of the Messiah's mission, a Messiah mighty to save, verse 4 offers a really helpful instruction on these realities put together. Verse 4, For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. It's the exact same language that is used in Isaiah 61. Here we see that the Messiah has both a mission of vengeance and redemption. But we also see which one brings Him joy. He sets aside a day to communicate His vengeance. He books a year to communicate His grace. So I ask this morning, do we believe in a Messiah who will come to judge? If we do, it is unbelievably cold and callous not to tell those around us. If this Thanksgiving the house was on fire, would we be sitting around chatting about sports and Netflix? If our families were playing on a train track and we knew a train was coming, would we let them play without so much as a warning? We must believe that the Messiah will come to judge and we must warn them accordingly. But we also must believe that the Messiah is mighty to save and He can save those who are lost. The Messiah is mighty to save and He can save and do so on His own. And it's a good thing that He can save on His own because verse 5 makes it clear He looked around for some help and nobody was there. Verse 5, I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled 
but there is no one to uphold. So, say the moving truck and the movers show up at your house, uh, and you open up the door, and there's 12, 12 movers standing outside your door, and one of them says, I am the strongest man in the world. Well, you can basically react to that with indifference. If he's right or he's wrong, it doesn't really matter. There's 11 other bodies who can help, right? On the other hand, the movers show up, or you think it's going to be the movers, you open up the door, and there's only one mover. But he tells you he's the strongest man in the world. Yeah, you're going to be glad for that at that moment, right? Because he's all you got. It's one thing for a Messiah to tell you he's mighty to save. It is a completely better thing when you find out he's the only one that can save. When Jesus came to the world on a mission of salvation, he came alone declaring, It is I mighty to save. Friends, do we believe that about our own salvation? Are we still trying to help Jesus be mighty enough to save us? About 150 years ago, Charles Spurgeon preached an amazing sermon on the three words of verse 1, mighty to save. It is an amazing sermon. It's so much better than this sermon. And he, he said, uh, you're going to get a lot of it here because I just couldn't get it any better. This is, this is a quote from, I gave you the quotes there. Oh, Believer, here's your encouragement. Are you praying for some beloved one? Oh, do not give up on your prayers. For Christ is mighty to save. You are powerless to reclaim the rebel. But your Lord is almighty, El Shaddai. Lay hold on Christ's mighty arm and rouse it to put forth its strength. Does your own case trouble you? Fear not, for His strength is sufficient for you. Whether to begin with others or to carry on the work in you, Jesus is mighty to save. The best proof, I love this, the best proof of which lies in the fact that He saved you. What a thousand mercies that you have not, been, that you have not found Him mighty to destroy. What a thousand mercies that you have not found Him mighty to destroy. I fear that we are so prone to go beyond the simple logic of a single Messiah who is mighty to save. It is so easy to add to it when there's nothing to add to it. All we have and all we need is Jesus Christ alone, mighty to save. So many churches are happy to talk about good morals and, and kind living without giving any attention as to the logic of how the mighty Messiah saves. Q. Spurgeon again. He says, There are some who preach a gospel which is very well fitted to train a man in morals, but utterly unfit to save him. They preach a gospel which does well enough to keep men sober, but not quicken the dead and save the soul. Sinner, Black as you are with sin, 
Christ this morning is able to make you whiter than the driven snow. You ask why, I will tell you. He is able to forgive because He has been punished for your sin. If you know and feel yourself to be a sinner, if you have no hope or refuge before God but in Christ, then be it known that Christ is able to forgive you because He was once punished for the very sins you have committed. And therefore, He can freely remit because the punishment has been entirely paid in Himself. But if we believe this, then should we not be more bold to share the gospel? If we really believed it, wouldn't we stop? See, I do this all the time. I try to imagine how it is that God might change someone or move someone. Ah, maybe if this happened, then maybe that happened, and maybe they heard something here. Maybe they would like if they went to this type of church, and maybe they could get these type of friends. Maybe you don't do that. That's just how I do that. That's, I, I, I play that, right? It's a joke. It's a joke. Spurgeon, again. We hold and boldly teach that Jesus Christ is not merely able to save men who put themselves in His way <laughs> and who are willing to be saved, but that He is able to make men willing. That He is able to make the despiser bend His knees and make hard hearts melt before His love. He is mighty to save. We call ourselves Christians because we follow Christ. Christ isn't a, a proper noun. It's not a name. It's a title. So we are really, you might say, Messiah ends. We believe in a Messiah who will one day come to judge. And we believe in a mighty Messiah who has already come to save. As we spend time during Thanksgiving, let's be sure to thank God that we have found Him to be a Messiah who is mighty to save and for a thousand mercies that we will never find Him as the Messiah who is mighty to destroy. But let us pray often, pray hard for those who right now if He comes, we'll find Him as a Messiah who's mighty to destroy. Let's pray that God in His mercy will move His mighty arm of His Son and save them.